Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And this is part two of our look back at the fifth Democratic debate, the debate held earlier this week in Atlanta. In part one of our look back at this debate, we talked about the debate from a national perspective. We talked about some of the issues that resonate nationally, some of the messages that candidates have across the field in terms of foreign policy, in terms of the question of impeachment. So that was really kind of a national perspective, if you want that look back at this debate, then I would take a look at the first episode in this feed from today. But on the second episode, we're going to take a Georgia-based perspective on the debate. And joining me to do that are Natalie Spire. Natalie, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Doing great. And also joining for this second panel is Peyton Childers. Peyton, how are you? I'm doing good, Kyle. How are you? Doing great. So thanks so much for joining For this second segment, we're going to take a look at this debate from a local perspective, because the political world did descend on Atlanta. And for a while, you wouldn't have known it from the debate. Basically, the whole first three quarters of it, you couldn't tell if the debate was in Atlanta or California or Detroit or wherever it was. Um, There wasn't this focus on Georgia specific issues or or contextualizing this debate to some of the political battles that have taken place in Georgia and across the South. But we did get to it before the end. We actually it's like they saved the Georgia segment for last. One of the most prominent issues, I believe it was the first one that was brought up was the issue of abortion. They initially brought up the heartbeat bill, Georgia being one of the most significant battlegrounds for abortion legislation in the, in the country during this last set of state legislative sessions. But Georgia wasn't the only one. Alabama passed a really stringent one. There were other states. Louisiana passed a stringent abortion ban. And that abortion ban in Louisiana was actually signed by a Democratic governor, John Bell Edwards, who had recently won, just this last weekend, won re-election as a conservative Southern Democrat in Louisiana. Natalie, let's start with you and just get your overall view of how the candidates handled the question of abortion and contextualizing that down for Georgia voters. What did you think of their approach? So I think, I mean, generally, this was a really important place to bring up abortion rights just because of the re- what you discussed earlier, the recent um, laws passed in Georgia and the debate being in Atlanta. So I think that generally... I mean, every candidate on that stage is pro-choice and supports um, abortion rights. Warren um, likened abortion rights to human rights and then discussed how anti-abortion laws will actually just hurt poor women and that rich women, no matter what, will be able to have access to abortion. Sanders even joined in saying um, men must stand with women um, and allow women to control their own bodies. Um, Klobuchar talked about turning Roe v. Wade into law, but still not necessarily a lot of debate on how candidates would take on um, these restrictive abortion laws. I think that we all know where they stand in terms of supporting abortion rights, but not exactly how they would combat the recent attacks on um, the woman's right to choose. So it was interesting that it didn't come up in last night's debate. If my memory is serving me correctly, earlier this year, Kamala Harris laid out what was a pretty unique plan in terms of how lawmakers in Washington could prevent or put pressure on state legislatures that are interested in enacting anti-abortion legislation. She wanted to set up a structure similar to what is available under the Voting Rights Act, 
where states that wanted to pass legislation that would restrict access to abortion services, no matter how big or small the legislation, would have to get that legislation cleared with the federal government before it could go into effect. There was a system of policy set up in the Voting Rights Act that required states that had a history of passing discriminatory, restrictive voting legislation to have their voting legislation pre-cleared by the Department of Justice. Um, That system, unfortunately, was gutted in a Supreme Court ruling, uh, I think like five or six years ago, I think it was 2013. But Kamala Harris wanted to bring back that model and apply it to abortion legislation. So I don't, the, the moderators might have not have gotten to her on that, but I think that is a really interesting approach to consider, particularly as Democrats try to speak to voters in the South that even though Georgia may be considered a, a, a battleground state, and, and I'm sure that we'll talk about that, there are still legislatures dominated by Republicans who are pursuing these policies. And I think Democratic voters were interested in what you were interested in, Natalie, which was how do Democrats stop the progress that has been made from Republicans more so than just what they would do and what their what their positive views are. Peyton, the other aspect of this issue was the moderators invoking John Bell Edwards, the newly reelected Louisiana governor, and the fact that he signed a restrictive abortion bill in his conservative state in Louisiana. What did you make of how the candidates approached the question of whether or not the Democratic Party has a place for Democrats like John Bell Edwards, who would support this kind of legislation? I think that Democratic candidates kind of danced around the subject of John Bell Edwards and his stance. I think in the end that they thought that a conservative Democrat who isn't pro-choice doesn't really have a place in the party, but they wouldn't directly say this. And I think that, I don't know, I just think it's non-existent to have a Democrat who is not pro-choice. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I believe Warren was the first one to get this question, and I believe it was Rachel Maddow who then continued to press Warren on this issue. What what immediately strikes progressives as the right answer on this question, which is just flatly no, that position doesn't have a place within the Democratic Party, I think also creates some political challenges for the white progressive Democrats who have had trouble attracting support from African Americans in this Democratic primary. Elizabeth Warren, to some extent, is this way. Pete Buttigieg, I think, stands out as the top tier candidate who has had the toughest time attracting the support of African American voters. Because some of the base for a conservative Southern Democrat who is anti-abortion is probably going to be older, somewhat more conservative African-Americans who may have their views rooted in their church experience, their religious experience, and may sort of disagree with younger, more actively pro-choice Democrats and, and may look more fondly on some politicians like John Bell Edwards going back even to like the strong support that the Clintons have traditionally had among African-American voters, you know, in the 2008 primary, it wasn't clear that 
Barack Obama's candidacy was going to get off the ground because he had a hard time attracting support from African-American voters. And it was somewhat ironically only after he won in Iowa and had a surprisingly strong showing that black voters really started to take a second look at him. Um, I think for candidates like Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg, you're kind of put in a tough spot because you know what the right answer to this question is, but it may not be the answer that helps you broaden your base of support. And the fact that this debate was in Atlanta, the capital of the South, and the relatively more conservative region of the country where some of these candidates have had trouble, um, I think that that somewhat explains why you saw some of this dancing around. I think another prominent issue that you saw in this debate, particularly in the Georgia section at the end, although it got a couple of shout outs earlier in the debate, was the issue of voting, of voting restrictions. This is the other sort of big policy push you've seen in conservative states that Stacey Abrams has tried to highlight, um, but also that has become a little bit more prominent of a discussion on the campaign trail. Stacey Abrams and, and her group, Fair Fight Action, really wanted to see the moderators push candidates on voting restrictions, on increasing access to the polls. Natalie, what did you think about how this subject got brought up in the debate? Yeah, so I think it was interesting just because of how Georgia's become kind of ground zero for this kind of voting rights action. Um, given the 2018 race, um, Stacey Abrams kind of has become the spokesperson that in Atlanta, they were discussing voting rights. One thing I caught was um, Klobuchar kind of discussing um, her plan for automatic voter registration when people turn 18, which I think um, was an interesting idea and definitely important, but doesn't necessarily get at some of the main or deeper problems, especially those affecting um, African-American voters or minority voters. It doesn't get at those questions of voter suppression, especially like what was happening um, in Georgia during the election. Yeah, I think it. It's 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 the first step for getting people into the into the door in terms of being registered. But part of what you've seen in the policies that have been adopted in Georgia is policies that lend towards making it difficult for people to stay registered, um, where there was a lot of focus on this issue of voters being purged from the rolls if they did not vote in uh, successive elections or if they moved and they didn't respond to a mail piece from the state updating their address, they could be knocked off the rolls. And and for a lot of people, the concern of critics of this policy has been that people may not know that they that they got bumped off the rolls. They may not find out that they got bumped off until they show up to vote and realize that they can't vote. That has been an issue here. You know, Andrew Yang began his trip to Atlanta this week, he said he laid out before the debate that he wanted to lower the voting age to 16. He's the first candidate that I've heard say something like that. But he also wanted to ban voter ID laws, another policy that is aimed at even if you're registered, making it more difficult to vote if you have a hard time getting a voter ID. Peyton, what do you think about how this discussion has continued? Do you I think part of what has been challenging for Stacey Abrams' group is to make this a top-tier issue. You know, we spend a ton of time talking about health care. We spend a lot of time, although I also think not enough time, talking about issues like climate change. A lot of people are focused on the economy. This is sort of one of these foundational issues that influences the way in which our government and our democracy operates. But it's not one that I think is really on top of mind for people unless you are paying really close attention to this stuff. 
What do you think about how that discussion was had during this debate? I think that it's important that this discussion did take place in Atlanta, since, like Natalie said, that it was so relevant in the past election in Georgia. I also think that um, it is a foundational issue in that if, like Cory Booker said, that people aren't pro-choice for abortion, that's not showing in Georgia legislation because there was so much voter suppression during the elections because people aren't being allowed to practice a democracy and show what they would like to see their politicians do and things like that. I think a big part of that is ensuring that people in like DeKalb County, Fulton County, um, Lee County, like counties that are predominantly non-white are making sure that we have enough polls there, access to voting, people knowing how to register to vote and things like that. And I mean, if I could just tag on, like, just the idea of fixing this problem before the 2020 election, the general election, is just so important. I think it's kind of especially in Democrats' best interest to be promoting this issue and kind of um, headlining it, in a sense, because more turnout is only going to help Democrats pull through in states like Georgia or states that might be leaning more purple. So at the end of the day, as much as we want to talk about other topics, I think like we spent a lot of time talking about impeachment and foreign policy, I feel like voting rights and voter suppression should be a main topic of conversation, if only to get more people to the polls. You have continued to see from Republicans who feel like they are being cast unfairly on this issue they will often cite the refrain that more people voted in the 2018 election than have ever voted before turnout for a midterm election, uh, which coincides with the statewide governors and lieutenant governors, all those elections is was significantly higher than other midterm turnout years. You know, midterms tend to have a little bit lower turnout because the president's not on the ballot. So those positions, people are a little bit less aware of them. They also latched onto an article that came out the morning after the debate, which called into question Democrats' claims that voter suppression was the cause of Stacey Abrams' loss in 2018, that if some of these laws had not been in place, that if Brian Kemp, the sitting governor who was Secretary of State at the time, if he wasn't overseeing the election that he was also running in, that there were that there were problems with that, that if that wasn't the situation, the outcome would have been different. I think it is challenging. The counterfactual here is always challenging. It's it's tough to go back and sort of pull apart the pieces of the law and say, well, if this didn't happen, what does that do to turn out? What does that do to the final numbers? What I think has been lost in that discussion is everyone in this country over the age of 18, has an individual right to vote. That that right to vote is not abridged based on your gender, based on your race, based on any kind of series of characteristics. And that what is lost is the policies that were in place that were challenged in court rulings or court settlements, the policies that were recognized in the the voting machine legislation that the state passed early this year in this in the 2019 legislative session that basically accepted some of the outcomes of court rulings and put them into law so that these policies that courts found discriminatory in 2018 would not be in place in 2020. 
there was some progress made there. There was some bad behavior by the state, but that not all of those issues have been solved. Stacey Abrams is leading litigation right now that seeks to put the state back into this preclearance structure on voting rights issues, and that she is doing that with an eye on the 2020 election, not an eye on relitigating the 2018 election. And so I think that's another important piece of this conversation is it's not entirely about the outcome of the 2018 election, but it is about the baseline policies that will impact people's ability to exercise their right to vote going forward and whether or not Democrats are paying enough attention to these policies to make sure that when they have power, that they change them and make it so that these restrictions are not there to keep people from voting. No, I totally agree. And just like Democrats can make a much better argument in terms of fighting for individual liberties um, in terms of voting versus trying to rehash the 2018 election, election. I think Klobuchar even had a line saying that if voter suppression hadn't been a problem, Stacey Abrams would have been the governor of Georgia. And while that might or may or may not be true, I think that event, people aren't necessarily going to want to hear um, a rehashing of the past. And by framing it as a future concern, it might be more compelling to voters. I also think that this shouldn't be painted as a one-side issue. It also, like, our rights as a democracy and, like, having the right to vote should be a bipartisan issue as well. I would just like to add that. Yeah, totally. So what were some of y'all's other takeaways about the location of this debate? It, It was held on the campus of Tyler Perry's movie studios. I believe it was the Oprah Winfrey soundstage or auditorium where the actual event was held. But that is a venue that is in southwest Atlanta. It's in town. It's close to the airport. From what I remember from reporting, that was a deliberate choice to highlight Atlanta, specifically the city of Atlanta, as opposed to sort of more broadly the state of Georgia. And what that meant is that the event was not held somewhere out in the suburbs, which would have happened to also be in one of probably two of the most competitive congressional districts that we're going to have in the 2020 elections. What did y'all make of, of the location and the venue of the debate sort of in that context? I thought it was kind of an interesting decision to not move to the suburbs just because of the recent wins of Democrats in Louisiana and Kentucky being so powered by um, suburban voters. I would thought maybe there would be an attempt at outreach um, towards Democrats in the suburbs. But I think it was just highlighting um, a more progressive spin of the party. Atlanta is one of the most progressive cities in the South. So just kind of um, going there. And then also I think it was an appeal in part um, to African-American voters as well, just because Atlanta has such a high um, African-American population. And Tyler Perry um, having hosting it at his soundstage. He's a very big icon in the African-American community. So I think that was also a big part of why they decided to choose Atlanta I would agree with Natalie. I think it was in Iowa that it was predominantly white and that was a critique of it. Whereas in the heart of Atlanta, you do have a big population of the African-American community. And I think it was nice that it was representative of that and also hopefully will urge people to get out there and vote. I do, though. I think it does serve as a counterweight. There was this debate about the early primary states, Iowa and New Hampshire, being predominantly white states and and whether or not having those states be first and traditionally the first few states have held a 
sort of a decisive and an elevated role in democratic primary politics that this sort of serves as a counterweight to that and the party being a little more cognizant to some of the critiques of having Iowa go first. Within this context of appealing to African-American voters, Pete Buttigieg has been heavily criticized in recent weeks for his rollout of his racial justice plan that he named after Frederick Douglass. Um, There was an article in The Intercept that laid out the problems with the rollout of that plan, the fact that there were people who were named in a letter that were said to have been supporting the plan that either didn't agree with parts of the plan or didn't realize that they were going to be named as endorsers of the plan. And then the sort of vague messaging behind it, where it would have been tough without doing a really precise reading, it would have been tough for readers to know, did this group of people just endorse the plan? Or did they endorse Pete Buttigieg? Um, What do y'all think about the the criticism of Pete Buttigieg in this debate, you know, Kamala Harris had this question teed up for her. What did you think of her approach to that question? Yes, so she criticized that Buttigieg needs to go deeper into the African-American community and appreciate African-American women for their support. Yeah, I also think it's interesting that she didn't necessarily go for the easy way out in terms of criticizing Buttigieg for using, I think she was asked about Buttigieg using a kind a stock photo in his um, unrolling of the Douglas plan of a woman from Kenya who wasn't even from the US. So I think it's interesting that she didn't and just in general that the candidates kind of stayed off of Buttigieg, especially since it was predicted that coming into the race because he was kind of um, surging ahead in the polls that there might be more attacks based towards him and her moving it away from that, I thought was just an interesting decision. Yeah. I kind of don't know why that she laid off there. I don't know if it felt like it cheapened the attack to make it focused on a stock photo. And I mean, she did pivot to the larger issues where Buttigieg has struggled, but she also didn't include in that answer criticism of his plan from that perspective. I think his plan adopts issues on racial justice similar to plans that have been proposed by other candidates. Um, so there wasn't, you know, in in the discussion that we've seen around healthcare, there seems to be this arms race around the details and around what the specific details of plans that you endorse say about your general values. And on this, there wasn't that sort of arms race among the candidates to say, well, my racial justice plan is better than yours and X, Y, Z is why. Um, And, you know, even if she had not wanted to take the shot on the stock photo, she could have taken the shot on the plan and done that. And yeah, she, she sort of held her guns on that one. You know, it was strange to me that Buttigieg avoided some of the most direct attacks with the exception of the one we discussed in the first segment from Tulsi Gabbard, because he is surging and in the moderate candidates seem to be having a moment and people who wanted to sort of show their progressive bona fides and say, if you want a really progressive Democrat, but you're not happy with Warren or Sanders, maybe Kamala Harris or Cory Booker are your alternative. I don't, that contrast just wasn't really drawn out in the way that I thought it could have been. Yeah, for sure. Maybe it was because just in general, she's not necessarily concerned about um, Pete Buttigieg surging among black voters necessarily. I don't know. But yeah, it was confusing. 
All right. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it for this week. It's been uh, enjoyable to take this debate at two different angles and, and to look at it from the national perspective and then from the Georgia perspective. Um, so Natalie and Peyton, thank you all so much for joining for, for our Georgia segment. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Kyle. So we're going to leave it there for this week. We'll certainly be uh, paying attention to these issues moving forward. We'll see if Kamala Harris maybe decides to to finally take a shot at Pete Buttigieg. We'll keep an eye on that. We're going to also come back to some more local Georgia stuff next week. We might see a decision soon on the decision that Governor Kemp has to appoint a replacement for Senator Johnny Isaacson. You may remember his his retirement is coming up at the end of the year. So lots to discuss that we will get to. Uh, but for now, we are going to leave that there. And so we will talk to you all next week. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.